Thank you for listening to this bonus edition of Water from the Well. In our podcast, we have been discussing some of the Psalms. Josh Lewis and Josh Carter are two Bible teachers working in San Francisco. I will let them introduce themselves. So we are here today uh, recording in the studio with Richard, who normally runs this podcast, but he invited us down today because uh, we're friends of his that we've known for a while, and I, Josh Lewis, uh, am here today actually from Atlanta originally, moved out here to San Francisco in April. I'm Josh Carter. I moved uh, to the Bay Area in June with my wife, Katie, and my son, Milo. And we've really enjoyed working with Josh and his wife, Kirby, in San Francisco to preach the gospel. Josh and Josh have been hosting a meetup Bible study there in San Francisco on Wednesdays. When I found out that they were going through the Psalms, I invited them to record a discussion of a psalm and let us listen in on that discussion. They were gracious enough to come and let me record two good friends talking about their favorite subject. Here is Josh Lewis and Josh Carter discussing Psalm 11. Okay, so we are talking about Psalm 11 today, and we have been going through a study of the Psalms on Wednesdays. Uh, We've been having a meetup and going through them one by one and having discussions about them. And we decided to talk about Psalm 11, and I guess really that was my decision. Um, But I I like Psalm 11 because I think that there are principles that are expressed in it that really can be applied generally to our relationship with God and to the world around us, as well as um, just principles that can be applied specifically to the gospel itself. Um, But I guess like before we actually get into Psalm 11, one thing that I would ask and we could talk about is what have we or what have you observed, Josh, in the Psalms in general so far? Yeah, so the the Psalms, one thing that stands out to me about them is, and I think this would stand out to anyone that began reading them, especially for the first time, how intimate and personal they come across One of the things that you'll see in the Psalms that reflects that is a lot of I, me language. Um, Regardless of who's writing, David being the man who writes most of the Psalms, I'll use him as an example here. He speaks a lot about how he's feeling in a particular moment or in a particular context. And so when I look at the Psalms, what I'm forced to do is think about me. Do I feel this way? Why would I feel this way? Have I shared those feelings? And so for no, number one for me is that that intimacy, that personal relationship that the Psalms draws on. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think that that's like what we've seen as a, a big focus of book one of the Psalms. Um, and that's really where our studies have been in just so far. Uh, book one obviously is Psalms one through what 41. I think 42 starts book two. That's right. And... There are other authors of the Psalms, but David is the one who writes all of book one, it appears, and many or most of the Psalms after that as well. Um, But we were just talking about this yesterday, that like if I asked you to describe who is David, the writer of all of these Psalms, is he a man after God's own heart or is he a murderer and an adulterer? 
Like those would seem like totally contrasting ideas and that they'd be in a, incompatible with each other, but it's one in the same, it's the same guy. And so like a lot of the things that are expressed in the Psalms can be both expressions of confidence in his relationship with God and his righteousness, um, especially in the face of opposition or his enemies. But then also he can be just like very humble and um, just introspective about dealing with his own sins. And I think that like when we see him in both of those capacities, we ought to see ourselves and challenge ourselves to say, do we have a relationship with God where we can express these different things um, at different points? Yeah, and that's a really great point. I think on one hand, sometimes I feel like that is an odd thing about the Psalms is that all these contradictory ideas may be expressed even from one line to the next. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we feel those things all the time. We feel frustrated in one moment and then content in the next, or we'll feel what we might call mixed feelings about someone or a situation. And so I think that really does reflect the honesty of the Psalms and really how personal these are that that someone like a David would be willing to not speak just one way about a situation to to appear uh, logical or to save face in one regard, mm-hmm. but he just speaks honestly about that mixed bag of feelings that he has. And so I think that's a great observation that you made about this and something that we shouldn't try to correct or run from. Right. Yeah, and, and it's challenged me in my own prayers already to just think, like, it's not about always saying like am i praying the exact right thing but it's first of all am i being honest and if i'm being honest and it's not right well then it kind of shows me what i need to change and what i need to correct but but if if i have wrong feelings or things that i'm struggling with it never helps to add a layer of dishonesty on top of it like we have to confront the way we're actually feeling and i think david does that So when we look at Psalm 11 specifically, um, we're going to read it here in just a moment, but we've discussed this a little bit before starting this recording. Looking at Psalm 11 specifically, uh, what can we know or what does it seem like is the context, what's going on with David? Um, Why does he write this psalm? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think one of the things that we need to understand about the psalms is the little heading that we sometimes have before you actually start reading the content of the prayer or the song is actually a part of the text. I know oftentimes if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll see a heading, and that's just the publisher's way of kind of letting you know what's coming up in the text. But a unique thing about the Psalms is that little heading is actually part of the text. And so oftentimes we can glean something uh, about the Psalms' context or about who it's directed at from that heading because it's part of the original. Unfortunately for us here in Psalm 11, we don't have a lot of detail about this psalm. It just says to the choir master of David. And so that heading doesn't give us a lot of insight. But what we do see is some context clues. Like in verse 1, you see immediately David seems like he's in a some sort of trouble or some sort of uh, distress as he speaks about needing a refuge. Yeah, so it seems like there's some kind of opposition, some kind of uh, trap that David feels like he is getting into, or there's some danger surrounding him. And really, he's grappling with and wrestling with how to respond to the danger that is surrounding him. And 
you know, if any of our listeners know very much about David's life, you could think of numerous times where that would be appropriate for him mm-hmm. to feel that way. So I guess what we ought to do is just go ahead and read through the psalm out loud. Um, that way, if anybody's listening, they can follow along with the thoughts that, that we're responding to. Um, but it's only seven verses, and to me, it seems like there's a really clear shift right in the middle of it between verses three and four of kind of a focus. And so maybe if you're listening to it, you can listen out for that. Um, but I guess, Josh, if you want to read the psalm, you can start there. So Psalm 11, in the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Okay, so obviously the fact that David is saying that he's taking refuge in verse 1 is alluding to the situation that he's in, that he's facing some kind of uh, distress And really the way I read this psalm is in a very confident, almost like defiant tone. We talked about how tonally the psalms can be very different, but it's almost like 1 Corinthians 15, the way that Paul talks about death. And he's quoting and he's saying things like, you know, uh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? That's kind of that defiant tone in verse 1 where David is responding to somebody who's told him, flee like a bird to your mountain. And he's saying, how can you tell me that? How can you say that? And it's like this incredulous reaction to really what I think is the advice of his friends. And there's a couple of different ways to interpret verses two and three. Um, and I think that like commentators and uh, people like that are divided on, on that. But I think that their advice, the advice of his friends, extends all the way down to verse 3. He's quoting them and saying, like, how can you say this to me? And so I guess, uh, what do you think is really the thrust of their advice that he's responding to in such a defiant and incredulous way? I've thought a lot about this, and I, I guess I reflect a little bit of the division of some thought out there, but to me, what seems to be reflected in verses two and three is that incredulous tone. And it seems like what, what these people are saying to David, whether it be friends or, you know, coworkers or whoever it is, you know, we might think of being around David. It seems like a hopeless thing that they're offering to him. I don't know all the details surrounding this particular moment in David's life. I'm not sure we can know all of those, but they're telling him to run away. They're telling him to find safety in a mountain and they're telling him that there's nothing that the righteous can do. Mm-hmm. It seems like one of those situations that we might say, this is, this is out of our hands. It's beyond our uh, pay grade, we might say it that way. And, and David is showing that his friends really have no hope in this situation and are offering him nothing. Right, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I think about like maybe when um, Absalom was trying to take the throne from mm-hmm. David or a situation like that. Um, but the idea, I think, more generally in verse three is, you know, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Like if justice itself is being perverted in such a terrible way, then what hope does a just person have? Um, it's like if if God's righteousness is being disregarded, what hope does the righteous have? And I think that maybe that's an idea that we can really relate to in the world around us, is that the more that we see sin and unrighteousness and, and just wickedness that surrounds us, it can seem like, like, Everything that's good is being turned on its head. So why be good? Like, why be somebody who holds to these ideals when we see that, like, they're just being disregarded all around us? And, you know, there's like some specific imagery that's brought out in in verse two. They're like, look, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And those specific observations lead to that more general thing that is said in verse 3 about the foundations being destroyed. And they're very appropriate because they tell David to be like this bird that flies to the mountain and he's being hunted like a bird. And so just to like go ahead and think about how this psalm can be more relevant to us today, what would be some of the observations that we can make in the world around us or that people would observe to make some of these same conclusions about, you know, the foundations of righteousness are being destroyed and, and there's really no hope for righteous people. One of the ways that when I think about this Psalm in light of your question, particularly these two verses, I think about people in general. I think about some of the, the narrative of the country that we're in the USA and the bemoaning of kind of a, a moral standard mm-hmm. being lost in this place. The, the changes that occur in this country on a personal level, on a cultural level, that some may say are leaving of core values that whether it be our forefathers, whether it be generations before, used to have. And what I see in these two verses in light of that is that's exactly what David's experiencing in his time. He's having people tell him that there are those out there targeting people who are trying to be upright. Mm. And that it's so much so, it's so prevalent, it's so pressing that he should just go ahead and run away. Um, And so when we look at these two verses, when we look at this psalm, when we look at any psalm, One of the struggles I have with the Psalms on a personal level is relating to them. And even though they use that I, me language, they are intimate, I still feel a distance from them. And the language might facilitate some of that sometimes. Um, But I think in these two verses, when you really start to think about it, you realize how near of an experience this is for any human, for any person with a family and relationships and struggles and a culture and a place that they live in, that they're going to feel at times that people are targeting them for their character, for their stances. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's really comforting to me is that, you know, these problems that we are observing and experiencing are not new problems. They're, they're problems that have been a part of human society as long as there's been human society. And so, you know, like 
we observe things in our day where it's like, man, like Christians are being targeted and persecuted and, and, and morals are being compromised and attacked. But I mean, you just read some of the things that righteous people have experienced through the centuries and they've observed and felt the very same pressures in their societies. So yeah, I think that's really comforting to me too. And so the temptation has always been, I think, to, well, you just flee like a bird to your mountain. And maybe we could talk about that before David gives his answer and like maybe a better response than that is what exactly is that temptation? Like what's encapsulated in a phrase like that, flee like a bird to your mountain? Um, And then maybe we could talk about some ways that we can be tempted to flee to our mountains in light of the stresses and circumstances that we find ourselves in. Well, I believe primarily what's reflected in the advice or the speech of those that are, that David's quoting here is a reliance on self Mm. that whatever is going on around you, that's hurting you or disappointing you or overwhelming you is something that you alone have responsibility to act on. In this verse, they talk about these these people that are aiming at them with the, these bows, and the response to that is, well, you should just run away. And it's a very isolating thing to, to begin to perceive life experiences as an individual, as someone who only has themselves to look after them. And certainly that would be a temptation for David to hear these people saying this and to forget that there's any one, any being, any force outside of himself to take in and to process and to even deal with his circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like the advice is like, well, you just figure out how to fix your own problems in your way. Right. And and the emphasis that I read into verse one is on the word your, like flee to your mountain. And it's interesting that God is often portrayed and his kingdom is often portrayed as a mountain. Uh, we talk about Mount Zion a lot, especially in the prophets. And so the better response is not to flee to your mountain, but really to flee to God's mountain. And I think that like what we're getting at is, is really the overall point of this psalm is that we have to rely on spiritual truths to help us to deal with our earthly problems. And that no matter how much we may try to solve our earthly problems by earthly means, we're never going to have a satisfying answer as long as we're going to our mountains instead of to God's mountain. And so I guess uh, like verses four through seven, the, the latter half of this psalm is really like a list of reasons why God's mountain is a much more worthy place to go to than our mountain. And he's exposing that the focus of his friends and this advice that he's receiving is is so misplaced. In verse 3, they're asking the question, what can the righteous do? And really, I think David's response is like, well, it's not about what can the righteous do. Really, the answer to that is rooted in what can God do, the ultimate righteous one. And so based on these observations that he makes about God, I think that his point to this advice is, I'm not going to solve all of these problems by earthly ways going to my mountain, but I'm going to go to God and find refuge there. So in verse four, 
the first thing he says about God is the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Uh, how does that inform us about the problems that we observe and feel around us? I think David perhaps is reminding those advising him, but primarily reminding himself, I think, as these psalms are personal, that there's a reality that exists, and it's not any less true than the, the pressing context around him, the situation and the circumstances that are making him feel perhaps like maybe he should flee. This reality that he's reminding himself of is as true as those circumstances that God remains. He's unmovable. He's unaffected by the circumstances that perhaps might move David. That's the temptation right now. Flee to your mountain. And in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. Regardless of those who shoot at the upright, God's not moving from his temple. He's not leaving his throne. And so that would be something, I think, steadying, something that could anchor David in a moment of what seems like despair. Yeah, yeah. It's like David is reflecting on and reaffirming what he knows to be true about God. Despite the way things may look in the moment, he's like, I know this is true and this hasn't changed. Um, and he, like these observations are things that are happening on earth. And the contrast is, well, God's throne is in heaven. And so he's unaffected by some of these uh, enemies and oppositions to him. But the whole idea, I think, reminds me a lot of like Ezekiel chapter one, where you've got God's people who are in captivity and they're enslaved. And it looks like God has totally lost control of the world. And when he appears to Ezekiel by the river Chebar, he is on this divine chariot. He's on this throne and he's surrounded in glory. And the point is, is that even in a time like this, God is still reigning. And that's hopeful to me to, to be reminded of is that. You know, no matter who my boss might be, no matter who the president might be, no matter who may wield some level of authority or power on this earth, they can't touch that. Like God is on his throne in heaven, and, and that's reassuring to me. He hasn't lost control. And if we think about David's circumstances, we think about whatever may have been the context of this pressure, this force that's causing people to advise him to just run away— and we can relate to that, then a question that we have to think about, and I think David thinks about here, is, well, what is God doing? If he is right. in his holy temple, if he is on his throne, and I'm suffering the pressure, the trouble of a tough situation, then how do we reconcile those two realities? Right. Yeah, and, and it's kind of coupled with the rest of verse 4, that, okay, so he is reigning, he has power, and then his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. So it's like, you know, whatever is going on in the world around us, the answer is not that God is not powerful because he is. And the answer is not that God doesn't see because he does. And so he's a God that has um, ability and a God that has awareness. And so being able to interpret what's happening um, has to be in light of both of those truths. Right. And in verse 5, after God sees and after God is observed as being powerful, it says that David is interpreting then in light of the two realities, the trouble and God's existence and ability, that this must be a test from the Lord. The Lord tests the righteous. Mm -hmm. 
And so I see that as an important, as you mentioned earlier, there's a pivot in these verses. I see that as an important kind of pivotal moment in David's prayer and his song and this, this intimate moment that he's having is that he doesn't just observe the reality that God is. He doesn't just observe the reality that is in his life, but he understands that those two things come together and he sees that they're reconciled by, well, God is, this situation is. And so this is an opportunity then to respond in faith. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, it informs a lot of New Testament principles like James chapter one that tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials and, and just that like the different things that God lets us go through can be things that harden us and test us and try us and shape us and mold us. And, and really it's this refining fire that God takes us through to, to make us stronger. And so even the trials can be blessings to us. And I think that also bound up in this idea of God testing is, is an idea that like we have the opportunity to, to prove our faith and demonstrate our faith not only to the watching world around us, but to God himself. And so uh, that is a motivating thought for me too sometimes. I mean, I think of Job, you know, how God let Satan put different tests and trials in his life and just how wonderful it was that Job was able to really demonstrate to God, I do love you and I do trust you and I am faithful to you, even in the midst of of, of really extreme trials like that. So the question becomes if we're living, you know, if you and I share the perspective of David, I, I'm having tough times, I'm, I'm encountering trouble, and it seems like people are targeting me, and I'm getting bad advice. But I know God exists, and I know he sees, and I can even then have the faith to say that this must be a test, then what are the parameters of that test? Like, how do I navigate that test? I mean, I guess one thing would be is renewing and deepening my relationship with the Lord. You know, it's like, Trials themselves don't necessarily make us stronger. They can make us bitter. They can make us weaker. But it's how we react to them. Does it drive us closer to God or further away from God? And I think to just like make it super practical, it's like if I'm going through a period of suffering or or anxiety or fear about a circumstance, I can react in one of two ways. Like I can let that be something that drives me to pray to God more or to pray to God less. Mm. And whichever path I choose, I think, reveals how much faith I really have in God. And I think another part of this, too, is there's a faith in God's character. So in verse 5, he's saying, like, I, I know that God hates the wicked. He hates violence. That, in verse 7, the Lord is righteous. And so he's reconciling all of this, that God reigns, God sees, he is righteous, he hates wickedness, and I think that like in light of all of that, the wickedness and violence of this world should drive us to pursue a righteous and holy God more and more instead of distancing ourselves from him. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think as we begin to look back at the beginning of the psalm and we look back at David quoting maybe advice that he's been given to flee to his mountain in light of what you're talking about, the difficulty, the the error of that advice becomes clearer because fleeing to his mountain seems like in David's mind would have him to abandon the realities he understands about God. If God is righteous, if he sees, if he's powerful, and if this is a test then, then to flee to his own mountain would be to, to give up 
on being righteous and doing righteous deeds and withstanding those who are evil. Yeah. And then I guess like one last piece of this psalm to bring in is I think that David is expressing an ultimate trust that despite the way things might look right now is that God will one day right all of the wrongs and that God will, you know, level the playing field or, or, or restore the balance. Um, and there's this request in verse six for him to rain coals on the wicked, that fire and sulfur and scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. And that's rooted in the Lord's righteousness. And there are other Psalms that have this like imprecatory type slant even more strongly than this one. But I think that we really struggle to express those kinds of thoughts. But I guess the question is, why is it essential for us to be able to express this? And then how does expressing this help us to cope with the injustices and the wickedness that are around us right now? Yeah, that's a, not only is that a big question, I think that's a foundational question. If you, if you're a person of faith or if you're exploring the faith, why would I endure difficulty? And why would I endure challenges and tests like this psalm represents? One of the most fundamental things about how God presents himself throughout time is that he makes promises. And those promises have a sense in which they relate to now. He often gives a fulfillment that is immediate. But then as you understand the words and you see the promises, you quickly come to realize that God's promises often have a greater future meaning. And so what we need to understand as we come to a psalm like this and as we reconcile some of the challenges that we're faced with and some of the things that, well, that David represents here in this psalm for ourselves, we need to understand that in this moment, God will make this right right now, but more importantly, he's going to make it right on a scale that might not be right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the hardest things about growing up for me was not spending the money that I was given immediately. I had an allowance for a long time and I had a brother and a sister who were really good about saving up their allowance. And I spent it always immediately on trifle little things. And the concept of storing up for later was something that was lost on me. Mm. And so that's been one of the biggest challenges for me personally, as a person of faith to trust that though challenges are presented now, God may sort those out right now in exactly the way I want to, but if I don't see that play out, that doesn't mean his faithfulness has failed. God is operating on a, a timeline that is much greater than the present. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's there's so many great reminders throughout the Bible about, about that hope. And, and, you know, I think especially about Jesus' teachings about, you know, our treasure is not laid up here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but... Our treasure ought to be in heaven because that's where it's uh, it, it won't waste away. And Peter talks about how there's this great treasure that's laid up for us that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Um, Paul talks about the the glory that is to be revealed to us being so much greater than the present suffering that we might go through. He talks about that in Romans eight and then Second Corinthians also. And and 
it's just easy, I think, for us to be so short-sighted where we get consumed with, okay, what am I observing here? What am I, what am I observing now? And because of what we know about God's character, we need to be able to appreciate the big picture a little bit more because we see time in a linear way and God sees it all at once. And the more that we're able to at least appreciate that God is, is so much bigger than just what we might observe in the moment, the more confidence that we can have in, like, in the end, there will be nothing left to be desired. Like, every right will be wrong. I mean, every wrong will be righted. And, and this ultimate hope that's being expressed, I think, is really the hope that drives us to be faithful people, even in the midst of extreme trial, is that the upright shall behold his face. Jesus promised as much that the pure in heart would see God. And I think that, like what you're saying, Josh, that it's true that if we pursue God and we love God and we follow him, that we'll see good things happen in our character and in our lives today. But that's not really the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is to see his fullness, to see his face, and to be with him in eternity. And that's when it all makes sense. Yeah, and and that really is the most if I can say it this way, most foundational promise of God is that we would see him. I mean, that's the intention from the very beginning. You think about how God relays us, relays to us how he began the world. He had a man and a woman in a garden that he walked with. And then you even think about in Moses's life, Moses's great request of being a man of God was that he would see his face. And he was still only able to do that to a little bit. He saw God as he passed by and as he was covered by God's own hand. And the promise in Matthew 5, 8, for any believer, for any obedient follower of of God, just like David was, is what you said, that the pure would see God. But we know that we don't see God necessarily every moment of every struggle. And certainly we don't see God in the fullness that he intends for us to see him except in the descriptions of a day where we are brought back to him. And so when we look in this psalm, David did not have the advantage of having all of the Bible texts like we have. And yet he still expresses this core truth Mm. that in the light of all of his trouble, in light of bad advice, he remembers that the upright are going to behold the face of God. Yeah, And, and it's that hope that anchors him in such a turbulent time. And the scriptures are plain for us today that hope is the steadfast anchor of the soul that we have. And uh, I mean, maybe it seems overly simplistic, but maybe we ought to do a better job of this, of reminding ourselves what our hope is and letting that hope be what drives us through the bleakest and darkest times that we go through. Absolutely. So just to kind of like bring this discussion towards a conclusion I thought that maybe I would ask this question. How would you use the thoughts of this psalm to encourage somebody who is being discouraged by maybe unrighteousness around them or like suffering that is being brought on them? Or how would you use this psalm to encourage somebody who's dealing with temptation? Um, How does this psalm inform us about how to deal with those tempting situations? The first thing that comes to my mind that I think this psalm speaks to 
is the isolation that one might feel when people are, so to speak, aiming at you because you're upright and your peers are just telling you to go away, go hide. There's an isolation that comes in those moments. You feel alone. You're discouraged because the people maybe you expected to support you are telling you something that you didn't expect for them to say, something that is discouraging by nature. And I think what this psalm, what David is showing us in his own words, is that when you feel that, you have to be able to rest in the truth that God has provided that is outside of that moment. Mm. You have to be able to, to trust so much that despite how you feel, despite what your peers are saying, that you can rest on God's character and that be enough for you in those moments. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that. I mean, it's just like no matter what changes in life, the things that we know to be true about God don't change. And so that's just a good thing to remind ourselves of. I think it's especially helpful to me to think about how I deal with my own temptations to sin and really helping other people who are dealing with temptations to sin also. That really at the core, what we are choosing when we sin is to try to fix our problems by selfish or earthly ways. Um, So somebody feels very... I don't know, like unloved and unaccepted and there's an empty part of them. So maybe they fall into some kind of fornication or adultery or somebody feels very depressed and upset. And so they try to patch that problem up with drugs or something like that. Uh, I think like fundamentally, that was what Satan was presenting to Jesus in his temptations was, look, you're hungry. Turn these stones to bread. Like, you flee like a bird to your mountain. You solve your problems in your way. And ultimately, what we have to learn is what you were just saying, is that based on the eternal truths we know about God and his nature and his character, that we need to turn over our problems to him and to his ways and not take it upon ourselves to flee to our mountain to flee to him as the only mountain that really is worth fleeing to that is going to be safe and eternal and last forever and and that we can really build our our trust in yeah that's a great point and so i guess like the last question that i had unless you had anything else you wanted to add was just how do we do that in a practical way how do we flee to not our mountain but to mount zion to god's mountain yeah I think the thing that stands out to me most about this is this quotation beginning in verse one that we've been citing all along here that we believe is advice he's received from friends. I have a lot of friends that mean well in my life. I have family that means well for me. They want the best for me. But at the end of the day, their advice, their conversation, their their hopes for me are not fundamentally what I need to be guiding my life on. And so to me, I think a practical way that we can take some advice, take some knowledge from this psalm is evaluate your sources. It would have been really easy for David to say, these people mean well, they love me, they don't want to see me hurt. And so they're telling me to run to this mountain over here where I can kind of hide and wait. But that wasn't the best thing for David to do. Could he have done some good? Maybe, possibly. He could have still been a faithful person hiding away in another mountain. But when he evaluated 
what he knew was concrete about God and what God wanted, then he actually ended up seeming like he was going to make a different choice. And so I think evaluating our sources in light of what we know for sure about God is perhaps one of the most practical things that I take away from this psalm. Yeah, and I mean, that's uh, perfectly demonstrated by Jesus as well. Um, There was a time when one of his closest disciples, Peter, told him, you know, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and you're not going to die. And he evaluated that source and said, get Mm -hmm. behind me, Satan. So like he had to disregard that bad advice to flee uh, like a bird to his mountain. And interestingly enough, I think Jesus also gives us really practical um, examples about how to flee to the Lord instead of fleeing to our own mountains. And sort of like coincidentally, Jesus often fled to a mountain, but it wasn't because he was pursuing that rock, but it was because he was spending time with the Lord there. And so fleeing to the Lord going to the Lord, seeking refuge in what he offers, oftentimes looks like extended periods of prayer, just opening our hearts up to him and telling him what we're feeling and what we're thinking and and kind of bringing it full circle to what we said about the Psalms in general, about being open and honest with God. And then I think like going to God as our refuge and as our mountain also looks like going to his advice on things, like what you were saying too that the answers to all of our questions are going to be found in the Lord and not in the advice of necessarily our friends or our family or what this world offers. And so I think that this psalm just really encapsulates this idea that spiritual truths help us to deal with earthly problems and that earthly problems will never be solved by earthly means. And so whatever problems that we may have within ourselves, within our families, within our communities, or even our country, those are problems that will never ultimately be satisfied outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we have to come to see is that the gospel is the answer for all of the problems that we face. The gospel gives us perspective and the gospel gives us hope that allows us to go through a life of sometimes suffering in discouraging times. Amen. Amen. And in those discouraging times, let us never forget that the Lord is righteous. Mm. I think to to one of the biggest temptations in trying moments is when we begin to perceive God's character as something else. We interpret his character based on events rather than interpreting events based on God's character. And David reminds us wholeheartedly that all of the problems you're talking about can be solved when we look at God's character and act. Again, thank you for listening to this bonus edition of Water from the Well. I would also like to thank Josh Lewis and Josh Carter for coming in and sharing their time with us. If you would like additional information, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or on our website at truthseekers.org. That's truthseekers.org.